You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Brian Dorries. I think if you could reorient, reframe the stakes of what it means to tell a story by gathering an audience for whom the stakes are high, and also entrusting them with the task of imbuing the experience with their insights, that all these new things are possible. Brian Dorries is a self-described evangelist for ancient stories. He is a founder and the artistic director of Theater of War Productions, a theatrical company which stages readings of groundbreaking plays followed by an audience conversation to confront major issues, including the refugee crisis, addiction, and domestic violence. Through these performances featuring leading actors ranging from Bill Murray to Francis McDormand, Brian Dorries and Theater of War Productions create a space for conversation where communities can heal together from traumatic experiences. During the pandemic, Theater of War Productions' Zoom performances united global audiences, reminding them that you are not alone in this room and you are not alone across time. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian Dorries. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on To Dine for the podcast. It's wonderful to meet you. 
My pleasure. Same. Thanks for the invitation. I am going to start this podcast the way I start all my podcasts by asking you your favorite restaurant. You have been in New York City for almost two decades. I'm fascinated to hear where you would take me if you could take me to one restaurant, Brian. Uh, You're originally from Virginia, but you um, have lived in New York for a very long time. Where would it be? Well, it wouldn't be in New York City. Uh, Ah. (laughs) Uh, My favorite restaurant, I think, uh, my favorite restaurant is uh, Clancy's, which is in the Garden District in New Orleans. And ah. it's, uh, it's an old neighborhood institution, not far from Tulane, uh, not far from Audubon Park, where they still have waiters who are lifetime employees of this restaurant. And it's the kind of place where you go and the waiter tells you what to order um, <laughs> after, after getting a sense for who you are and, and briefly sizing you up. And then says, no, you want the the lamb chop and the, or the pork chop and the you know, the lemon pie. And and you don't disagree because the waiter is a professional who knows how to read people or knows you. Yeah. So. Yeah. And what is it about Clancy's that made you choose that? Clancy's is a, you know, a local neighborhood institution. It's off the beaten path. But it, if those who know food and those who know New Orleans know Clancy's and I've had some of the best meals of my life mm. there and in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. In general, there are lots mm-hmm. and lots of great restaurants in New York City. Um, I live directly across the street from Prune, sure, uh, which which shut yes. down at the beginning of the pandemic, but yes. is making is showing signs of about to be reopening again. So I'm mm-hmm. really thrilled to be across the street from one of the best restaurants in New York City. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. So for uh, of all New York, you would still take me to New Orleans, and is it the atmosphere of New Orleans that you feel at home, or is it just the quality of the food? I think New Orleans has a different relationship to food than New York City. In some ways, it's less pretentious about the food. And also, it, uh, I feel like the food in New Orleans celebrates the, sort of the best aspects of what has come to be American culture, the melting pot that is American culture. And while also with roots in Africa and Europe and, you know, it's Creole and in in South America. I think the um, music and uh, mm-hmm. food are top of the list for visiting New Orleans because it's a city that celebrates both of those things. New York City um, has incredible restaurants and it's amazing to see, even with the pandemic, what has emerged, even during the pandemic, mm-hmm. the sort of indefatigable will and creativity and passion of people here in New York City and how it manifests in food. Yeah. Um, but it's it's different, I think, in New Orleans. Um, mm. I guess I, New Orleans, the Clancy's, the restaurant I'm mentioning, is a place where you get the best you get the best best meal of your life, but simultaneously you see all the people in the neighborhood and in the community that you'd want to be engaged with too. There's a sort of again a lack of pretense. I mean, it's a it's a place where anyone in the neighborhood could show up. And the, I love the that. Le- yeah, the level of excellence is so high that um, yeah. But certainly there are places like that here in New York, but not quite as open. Celebratory. Or, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. There's a celebration to New Orleans, culture, food, and restaurants that has a different vibe. It's a completely different vibe than New York. Yeah. 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 I'm always fascinated why people love the restaurant. Yeah. To me, it's not important where they choose as to why, because it speaks to who they are. So thank you for sharing that. Let's dive into Theater of sure. War. How did it start? How did this idea come to be? Theater of War 
that which was the first of now 30 projects began first in hospitals i had this idea that if i could put ancient greek plays about complex ethical and complex medical situations in front of doctors and patients and nurses and medical students that something would happen mm. and i put the idea to the test here in new york city at wild cornell uh, medical school up on the upper east side and had my hunch affirmed when i saw after a reading of one of my translations of a an ancient greek play called philoctetes about a chronically ill veteran who's abandoned on an island on the way to the trojan war by his own unit by his own community on account of an illness he contracts on the way to the war and after performing his play in a hospital and asking the audience to respond to what they heard that the themes that spoke to them it became clear to me very quickly that the audience with something at stake the audience with skin in the game always knows more than i do Mm. And that, in fact, even though I translated the play from ancient Greek and really the origins of theater of war begin in my study of classics and love of ancient texts, they were translating the play for me because they'd lived the experiences of the play. And something started to emerge even in those early days, 2006, 2007, when I started doing this, where I saw that sometimes education and power and privilege can be an impediment to the direct and efficacious experience of a story. Mm. Um, we have all these sort of received notions of what we should be thinking or how we should be feeling. But when you haven't heard of Sophocles, for instance, which is a vast majority of people, and you're presented with a story that's 2,500 years old, and all of a sudden it's speaking to you as if it was written for you or about you, and these experiences that it's speaking to are things you've never shared with anyone, because you felt so isolated by them. Well, something really magical and powerful then starts to happen. So that's what led me on this journey, uh, that first hunch that the audience knew more than I did and the veil was pulled back and I started searching for audiences that knew even more than the first ones. And that led me to the US military in 2007, 2008. I didn't know anyone in the military when we got started. I protested the invasion of the wars in Iraq war in New York City and the streets felt very ineffective. And in doing so on March 20, uh, 2003, March, 2000, March 20th, 2003, when uh, we invaded. But when I read stories about veterans returning from the wars in Iraq and then in Afghanistan, suffering from and struggling with signature wounds that were both visible and invisible that seemed like they could be ripped from the pages of Sophocles plays or of Homer's epics. I got this, another bee in my bonnet, like if I could just put these ancient Greek war plays in front of military audiences, maybe they could be lifted out of isolation and into community in the way that mm. I had observed happen in the hospital. And, um, and that's what started the sort of the journey behind theater of war. So tell me if I'm wrong, but you're really harnessing the power of a great story to affect people in how they see their own world, not only their own life, but how they move through the world. And you're doing it in such a way. Can you talk me through how you got the Department of Defense to uh, give the thumbs up to you doing this and, and what that process was like? Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it's true to your to your point that the story is kind of a technology. I think it's an ancient technology for 
helping people see themselves in a continuum, in a larger picture. Mm -hmm. One thing I've noticed of doing years and years of this work now, 15 years since I founded my own company, but maybe 17, 18 years now of doing this, is that when people experience trauma or loss, betrayal, any number of things, oftentimes, almost you, all across the board, cross-culturally, cross-temporally, people feel that they're the only humans on the planet who've ever felt this alone, this lost, mm. this angry, this shameful. Mm. And so a story is a technology for helping people to reflect and see themselves in a much larger picture and continuum. And, it, you know, I think that the core public health message of the work from the beginning was you're not the first person to have felt this way. You're not alone. You're not alone. And so I say yeah. to audiences, you, you know, you're not alone across time. Mm. Um, but that is a very powerful public health. And you can see it have a palpable effect. It had an effect on me because I um, I came to this work after losing my girlfriend in 2003 mm. on the night of the invasion of Iraq. Wow. How did she die? She died of cystic fibrosis oh, um, after having I'm a so double sorry. lung transplant. She was 22 and I was 26 when she died. And we were living in wow. the East Village, not far from here on 13th Street and where I am now. And it, it was both the most heart-wrenching, but also wondrous and awe-inspiring experience to be present for the death of someone I loved who also had rehearsed for it her entire life, who was conscious of her own mortality from a very early age and spent her last moments alive on this planet, comforting those around her and mm. easing us through the process of her death. Wow. All I wanted to do after that happened was talk about it with anyone who would listen, but we live in mm. a very death-averse culture that does, you know pretends like this isn't actually going to happen to all of us at some point. And so no one wanted to talk about people would recoil when I talk uh, about Laura and her death mm. or what I'd witnessed in the months leading up to her death in our apartment. And so in some ways also Theater of War was born. I didn't know it at the time, but it took about a hundred performances of doing this work and evolving it and coming up with new projects to discover that really it was as much for me as it was for the audiences for whom we were performing. I needed it because I needed to create a space that wasn't relegated to the basement or the closet where people in sort of open public discourse would acknowledge these really, these universal human experiences and talk about them. I needed mm -hmm. to talk about it. So the, you know, fast forward to 2008, I got this idea after reading about the Walter Reed scandal in the mm -hmm. newspaper about our sort of country's failure to meet the physical and mental health needs of veterans returning from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that even though I had objected to the wars and even though I had protested against them, I couldn't sit on my hands and watch our country criminalize its warrior class as we did with the Vietnam War and and, right. uh, and, and perpetrate yet another sort of moral injury, not just upon veterans, but upon ourselves as a nation. Mm. And so I thought, well, if I could just do this thing that I saw happen in hospitals for military audiences, maybe something could happen. Well, it turned out at that time, uh, it was seen as a career ending gesture in the US military to raise your hand and say, I'm struggling with an invisible wound. Mm. And the military and Congress had appropriated a billion dollars essentially to address these physical and mental wounds. And yet on the mental health side, very few were availing themselves of the resources that existed within the military and outside of it. And so the military was looking for out-of-the-box ideas. And thinking. I had, and I had one. <laughs> and I here comes one. Brian Dorries with his <laughs> exactly. out-of-the-box thinking. I love exactly. it. Exactly. So here I come. And I didn't know how to talk to anyone in the military. I didn't know how to, you know, their language. I didn't know 
their tribalism, their symbolic sort of everything in the military signifies in ways that civilians we can't begin to understand. And I was very new to all of it, very green. So I had lots of doors as I went to people and said, I'd like to perform Greek tragedies for active duty service members. Some were politely shut in my face, others slammed. <laughs> but eventually I learned uh, how to talk to people in the military. And eventually uh, it became clear that I didn't need to belong to their tribe mm. in order to actually be of service too. I didn't have to apologize for who I was. I just had to show a certain reverence for what I knew that they had access to that I didn't and also a desire to help. And mm -hmm. so I read about in the New York Times once again, a Navy psychiatrist named Bill Nash, who was telling the story of Sophocles Ajax to Marines in San Diego. And I saw the quote and I, I had been working on a translation of Ajax, which is about a the suicide of a great warrior who loses his best friend or close friend in battle, Achilles and battle. And then after being betrayed by his commanding officers and his community, when they pass him over for the award of Achilles armor, uh, he ends up taking his and doing something in his own mind, irrevocably shameful. He uh, takes his own life on mm -hmm. stage against the pleading of his wife, against the his, you know, with a three-year-old son inside his tent with a community all begging him to listen to them. So if Marines were talking about Ajax, we're going to do it. We're going to come to San Diego. So I, I called, I, I emailed and I called and got a response pretty quickly from Bill Nash. And he said, I don't know about getting you onto a military base, but how about a, a, a conference for Marines on combat stress in San Diego? Mm. And I said, we're coming so at that first conference, were you there to speak and talk about what you do, or were you there to create a performance that they would absorb? We did both. We actually, we, so we were there to create a performance and we brought six actors, or sorry, four, we brought uh, five actors, four, we brought four actors, excuse me. Um, and we did six scenes from two ancient Greek war plays, Ajax and Philoctetes. We had, as part of that first cast, we had David Strathairn and Jesse Eisenberg and an Iraqi-American actress named Heather Raffo wow. and this terrific actor named Bill Camp, who's this amazing character actor. We did have to go up in front of the Marines because it was optional to come see Greek tragedy. And they, th that <laughs> same cohort got uh, free tickets to a San Diego's Padres game. <laughs> and, and so they had what to choose... <laughs> That's a tough uh, one. That's a tough one, even for me. Yeah. Like, I would yeah. be, be part, hard pressed. And so we had to get up there in front of the full plenary of these Marines in uniform and sell it to them. And I had the actors standing behind me and uh, a general who was on stage, a two star. And I said, these ancient stories that we're here to perform speak across time to values that are very much alive in the US Marine Corps. They speak to honor and courage and commitment. They speak to loyalty and fidelity. They speak to loss. They speak to the guilt of surviving. And they speak to uh, the trauma of war. And, and we would be honored if you would come be part of this experience tonight. In addition to having the well-known actors, the Marine Corps uh, offered those who came access to a, a sort of government per diem buy-in buffet and there was a kind of cash bar in the back of this Hyatt ballroom with wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and harsh fluorescent lighting and, you know, the kind of conference space where nothing soulful ever happens. And we performed six, these six wow. scenes, two ancient Greek plays. And you could. And what heard, was the reaction? You could have heard a pin drop. I didn't wow. know how to read. And I didn't, again, I didn't, the semiotics, the like, what, what does this mean when they're sitting there 
staring at you with a, with an attention that you'd never seen in the commercial or nonprofit theater. It's like they're boring a hole in, in, mm-hmm. and through the actors' heads. Uh, what does that mean? In the military, they call that locking on. They're locked on this ancient Greek play, and there's a, a kind of quality of silence that is earned, not mm. get, not necessarily presumed like mm, we have in, yes. in our, our theater. Yes. And, th- and something is happening, but I have no idea. We get to the end of the, the sixth scene and they jump up and they give us a standing ovation. And I think, well, that I could be that they're just a very polite culture. They seem very, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, formal. So maybe that was it. And who knows? And then uh, we brought up after that, we we had the actors go sit in the audience because even then I knew what I have come to as a core value of our work, which is that actors are kryptonite to real discussion and they distract the audience from talking about what actually just happened in the room. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you always have the actors leave or have... The actors know that their active service begins and end with reading the text. Uh, wow. Although although it's helpful that if they're well known because it validates the audience's right. experiences. They're not there to talk about their celebrity, and they're certainly not there to talk about artistic process. And that's the trap of culture now. We have infinite capacity to consume conversations about process. Mm. But in every room where there's an exchange, something on a much deeper level happens that we end up ignoring because we get distracted by the shiny object. And and so we put the actors, we put actors in the audience. And we bring up four members of the community with skin in the game with something mm. at stake, a military spouse, a lieutenant colonel, a lower enlisted, a Marine, uh, a Navy psychiatrist. And we asked them to respond from their guts to what they heard and saw in the stories that spoke to them across time. And, I, you know, again, I had no idea what would happen, but very soon into that part of the evening, uh, one of the community panelists who was a military spouse, her name was Marcel Waddell leaned into her microphone and she said to the audience, hello, my name is Marcel. I'm the proud mother of a Marine and the wife of a Navy SEAL. And my husband went away four times to war. And just like Ajax, he came dragging invisible bodies back into our house. And a quote from the play, our home is a slaughterhouse. Hmm. Or a quote from my translation of the play, obviously. Mm-hmm. But And when she did that, it was sort of the first instance in Theater of War Productions model of someone naming something by way of an ancient story and using a quote from the play to reveal something to the audience that wouldn't have been revealed otherwise, but also establishing a kind of rules of engagement of the discussions that now follow all of our performances, which is to say, we create a kind of vocabulary, a syntax for talking about hard to discuss subjects. Our home is a slaughterhouse gave permission to all the other spouses in the room to begin to use the play to acknowledge their hidden suffering or their loss at a time when it was seen not only as a career-ending gesture for Marines to raise their hands and say that I'm struggling, but spouses were confined and relegated to the shadows and silence for fear that they would disrupt or somehow take away their uh, spouses, you know, active duty spouses' career possibilities that Mm -hmm. potentially even to provide food Mm were hung in the balance. So the silence that we had both earned in the performance and then penetrated during the discussion was high stakes. It was it was a silence that on both ends was one born out of a relationship to the stakes of life and death. And whether people actually engage with the material or begin sharing their hidden suffering or not could result 
in you know life or death consequences. And mm-hmm. everyone in the room knew that and was hanging on it. So she said that line and then other people did the same thing and they followed suit. And then pretty soon I was out in the audience facilitating a discussion where 400 Marines and their spouses and each successive person who spoke raised their hand got the microphone and then quoted a line from the play from memories mm. if they'd known the plays their entire lives wow. and re- and related it to something they'd never said in private let alone in public you know uh in front of their peers in this in this open setting we'll have more on this conversation in just a minute but first thank you to our sponsors hey i'm Ryan Reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. To Dine For, the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National Agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National Agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. I'm really fascinated because the multi-layers to what you're doing is really so impactful and such a wow. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between putting on a production that you get that earned silence, that makes a difference, that you know just by being in the room, it's impacting the audience Mm -hmm. and calling it a day. And then the second component of bringing those people with skin in the game up onto the stage and then talking it through. Why is that second section so important? I'm going to try to limit my response to this because it's my soapbox. Um, 
for the last 150 years as a culture, since the advent of electrified light and the cinema, we in cultural spaces have relegated our audiences to darkness and silence. Mm. I think about the early 19th century, almost wistfully, you know, at least in the early vaudevillian days, people brought tomatoes and lettuce and things to throw at the state. At least they had something to do. At least it was expected that they would do more than sit in silence. They had agency. All of our aesthetic norms, even what what we call naturalism, born in the late 20th century or late 19th century and the early 20th century in Chekhov and in in the cinema in in a kind of relationship between this media this this medium of film and television that then evolves radio that makes everything quiet and makes everything direct again further reinforces the relegation of the audience to a subordinate position and that's created a, a hierarchy in culture mm-hmm. that I think is problematic and also that we've forgotten what it's for. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, capitalism and late capitalism have created the conditions whereby what happens on stage is something we consume. But what became clear in the hospital and then the Hyatt Ballroom with the Marines and then all the other spaces we visited, now thousands of spaces like prisons and homeless shelters and Title I schools and you know public parks, is that really for a gift exchange to occur between audience and performers, between people who are creating something and those who are receiving it, it's almost as if it can't be consumed. It can't be something that can be transactional in order to be effective, especially when we're talking about human suffering. Mm -hmm. How can a conversation about human suffering be transactional and still be effective? Mm -hmm. And there are so many instances in our culture where we go see something and we say, well, I've checked that box or I've read the newspaper and it hasn't, hasn't really touched me, but I've checked that box. And so, okay, backing up, I do not see the discussion in our model as ancillary to or separate from the performance. It's all it's, it's all part of it. It's one thing. And, yes. uh, and I, I sort of outlined the three component parts. That first night when we, we scheduled 45 minutes for that discussion with the Marines, the discussion lasted three and a half hours and had to be <laughs> cut off at midnight. Wow. And, and it was clear that we had stumbled across this really powerful, ancient- model technology, this medium, a social medium, a social medium that actually had the capacity to hold the complexity and the ethical distress and the moral distress at the center of what it meant to be a human, what it meant to be adult, that could hold it all. And that could hold things that were repugnant, that were politically challenging to hear, that were taboo to say. Mm -hmm. Theater has always been a place of transgression, a ritual space where anything could happen. But again, I think we've lost touch with its power, not as necessarily only a tool, but inextricably something that is has all of these dynamics we've been talking about that are, in addition to being artistic, also spiritual, also political, also rhetorical in nature. So for me, the discussion, when the last person in the audience finishes speaking, the event, so to speak, comes to a close. Have people reached out to you? Because I imagine that doing this, you know, this has been an evolution for you personally of, yeah. of, of learning and and how do you how do you allow people to really create a space that allows people to say what's on their mind and speak their truth and heal? You have created a skill set and a knowledge and a know-how that yeah. is so unique. Have people reached out to you in other modalities and other mediums to say, hey, you know, I, I work in this environment. Can you help me get yeah. people talking? 
Yeah, so shortly after the success we had with the U.S. military, we developed a project in prisons. And shortly after that, and that was with a play called Prometheus Bound. And, and uh, shortly after that, we developed a project on end-of-life care because of the experiences I'd had mm. caring for Laura and the insights that I heard from palliative care and hospice nurses in particular who guided me through the process of, of her death. And and also, we generated a lot of press. We had like you know 30 national stories in the first three years. And and all of a sudden, yes, it started to come back, started to sort of uh, come back around. And the first call, I think, as I recall, came from the National Institutes of Health. And it came from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Addiction and mm. a, a sort of pioneering leader of that institution named Nora Volkoff, who pioneered the use of MRI technology in the 80s and early 90s to help people visualize the impact of addiction and drug mm. use on the brain. So she'd use this technology to do that. And she was looking for other ways to make addiction visible. And she said, she, they came to us and said, we had a meeting with these hard-nosed scientists in DC. And they said, uh, we see what you did for the US military. Can you help us confront doctors, primary care physicians in particular, with their own prejudices against patients who are struggling with the disease of addiction? And then mm -hmm. once we've confronted them and gotten them into dialogue about their own moral distress at, at being with having 10 minutes to see a patient and then being de facto mental health and addiction counselors and not having the skills to deliver what those patients need. So defaulting to their own sort of prejudices against them and judgments of them. This is before the opioid crisis really exploded. We'll flood them with resources and other ideas about how they can be more responsible toward their patients once they acknowledge. So we said, sure, let's do Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night, mm -hmm. Act, Act Three about a sort of a morphine addicted matriarch in the 19th century who is a proxy for Eugene O'Neill's own mother and alcohol abusing sons and husband who cannot withstand the shame of the mother's addiction. And let's talk with doctors after they've heard actresses like Diane Wiest and Blythe Danner and Deborah Winger and all these other, Katie Irby, performing this text for audiences of a thousand doctors at a time. And are these actors, I'm oh, sorry to cut you off, but are yeah. these actors doing this pro bono? No, so <laughs> that's another soapbox, but I'll, I'll try <laughs> to keep it brief. So <laughs> so the American theater for most actors of note is, is, is charity. So which is to say that the scale off-Broadway rate is something akin to charity, something that no one could actually live on. Right. And if you've and if you've been paid the rates of film and television, you'd be hard pressed unless you were like really truly committed person to the theater, you would ever go back. So it's a very small amount of money they're getting paid. So for uh, no, well, that's what they're getting paid regularly if they do theater. I wanted to create something that we never could compete with film and television. But just going back to the question about the Department of Defense, our at the end of that journey with the military, as you intimated earlier, there was a contract with the department. I went from being someone who did this as an avocation and as a hobby to starting my own company and then taking this idea to scale. And scale yes. meant 100 performances in a single year on military bases all over the world. And the first year of that two-year contract was $3.4 million that first year. And that process of convincing a department of defense that readings of ancient Greek plays for con uh, contemporary warriors and soldiers and Marines and, and sailors would be of value. And then putting a value to that mm -hmm. uh, was also the beginning of my journey as someone who was articulating and arguing that, that the use of storytelling, the use of theater, the use of these tools, these 
that it had value that was greater than the value that it was afforded in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so when we had that first contract, I then I'm not going to go into the weeds of how much we paid everyone, but we right. paid everyone commensurate with the fact that that they were giving up uh, two or three days to travel with us someplace. And it, it was just it was much higher rate, and it continues to be than you would receive in the theater. It was a respectable amount of money. It was not the, the, what you're saying the charity. It was a little bit more. No one's building a house in the Hamptons on it, but <laughs> they're feeling respected. Well, first of all, I mean, if you think about them as as someone who wants to put good in the world. Yeah. When you think about why you become an actor or an actress, I would think that you are you are really attracting the best of the best who want to contribute. Absolutely. And and who want to do something with their craft, not their yes, celebrity. Exactly. So so yeah. um the, the thing that's really exciting is that they get respectfully paid. We'd have an amazing time. We have great meals. And then they would hear and see palpably in the audience the effect that their craft had on a group of people who desperately needed the healing that was happening in the room. And there would be a reciprocity. I mean, I used to say that the real direction in our model doesn't come from me as the quote director. It it comes from the audience. So the first performance you do for us is the dress rehearsal until you've heard what the audience says in response. And some of these audience members would speak openly, but many would line up afterwards to speak to you know, David Strathairn or Francis McDormand or one of these actors, Reggie Cathy, and they would say, that line that you said, you know, spoke to my hidden suffering. I heard the voice of my deceased father who served in World War II for the first time and now finally understand his experience. We had people come up to us and say, I saw myself reflected in what you just said, and I've checked myself into a 28-day treatment program for alcohol and drug abuse. We've had people come forward who are planning to take their own lives. And by virtue of seeing their own struggles reflected in an ancient story, they got help before it was too late. We've even had instances of people who were planning acts of mass violence come forward mm. after performances and have. So to say, you know, I say, you know, and you, people hear me on your program that, you know, life and death significance of reading. A but it's real. It's true. But it's yes. true, and, yeah, and it's, it's kind real. of amazing. I think if you could reorient the sta- you know, reorient, reframe the stakes of what it means to tell a story by gathering an audience for whom the stakes are high, and also entrusting them with the task of imbuing the experience with their insights, that all these new things are possible. When you think back to your first hunch, right? When yeah. you first had that idea for the hospital on the Upper East Side, and it was truly a hunch that you had to now, right? All yeah. of that from that time. How have you personally changed and what have you learned about this journey? Because you are the founder. This was your idea about what is possible and just the incredible options that are available to the creative to make a difference in the world. You know, it, there are nights, there, are, there, there have been weeks where we've done this five times a week or more. When we went to scale physically, there were periods where we, we had three teams and, two, and three different cities doing this in different locations at the same time. And then most recently when we pivoted to online and we had our first performance on Zoom in May of 2020, we had 15,000 people from 42 countries show up to our first Mm -hmm. event. And all of a sudden we're in global dialogue across borders and boundaries and a kind of pluralism emerges that this isn't possible in the architecture of the theater. And most nights, even though what we're hearing and what we're seeing is profoundly hard to be in the presence of, 
most nights it gives me immense energy mm. and resolve to continue doing the work, mm. to be in the room and to receive the wisdom that comes from audiences who have lived the experiences described by the stories we're performing. Also, it's immensely gratifying to work with some of the best actors on the planet. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if we were doing this 30, 40 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, I'd you know, be working with Marlon Brando and mm -hmm. Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman and Sidney Poitier, but I get to work with all these other actors. We have over 250 who are part of our company who are bringing to bear sort of the highest level of excellence in their craft. Mm. And in so doing, making things possible that I never conceived of possible with, with these audiences. Mm. So it's all thrilling. If I'm really effective at what I'm doing, and if the company is effective at what we're doing, really it's a disappearing act. So it's really not about me. We go into a room, for instance, full of special forces, special operators, and they're all being made to do this thing where they're going to watch a Greek play and talk about their feelings. And it runs against the grain of everything that they <laughs> have been taught to do and what, how they identify themselves. And you could see as you walk into the room, that room of whatever it is, warriors actively thinking about all the ways they could kill you. They're so annoyed by the, your presence and by the exercise. But, but 15, 20 minutes in, something in the room shifts and 45 minutes in, the discussion begins and the real performance emerges in the room. And that community that's closed off to everyone else and certainly to you, all of a sudden takes ownership of the story and starts to make sense of it. And at that point, I and others who are there helping facilitate, even the actors, we're just, we're just accessories to this thing that's occurring in the room. And the best thing we can do is sort of let it unfold and help nourish it. But it's deeply nourishing for me when that happens. That's the most exciting thing for me. Some people like jumping out of planes. Some people take, you know, drugs. For me, it's going up against a really resistant audience. And 45 minutes, an hour in, seeing that we've somehow moved the needle, that something emerges or happens that would never have happened had we not come. So the impact upon me over the last 15 years has been immense. And it's caused me to see the potential that resides in almost every exchange, even the one we're having right now after people listen to it as recorded mm -hmm. content for that type of transformational exchange to occur. And I just think there's infinite work to be done turning the lights back on. Mm. I'll be honest, you've changed my life just in this very <laughs> short conversation because I think I, I hadn't thought of how much art I have consumed in the darkness. Yeah. And then have never talked about it with anyone and how much impact that could have had on the other person I talked to or myself, but actually talking through what I have just absorbed and what it means like that, just that very small act that very few of us do could be revolutionary. I think it could be. I appreciate you saying that, Kate. I, I think it's a really radical proposition that very few people see. Mm -hmm. And and there's such a deep resistance to it because we've acculturated and habituated this idea that this is what a play. I went to my daughter's middle school play last year. She's playing drums in this musical and everything that leading up to it was acculturating you to expect that this is what it means to do a play. Mm -hmm. um, walking past a security guard, mm -hmm. buying a ticket and having a transaction, having someone with a, a clipboard and a walkie talkie officiously speak to you and tell you how to behave as you go to your seat. These mm -hmm. things accrue and then turning off the lights and sitting mm -hmm. in the darkness. 
you know, these things accrue to a place where for those who aren't accustomed to going into these spaces, it's just saying, this is not for you. You don't belong here. But the very people that would imbue these experiences with the richness that I'm describing are the very people we keep out. Yes. By, by virtue of the apparatus we've created around culture. Now we go, I go to, I took my daughter to a Broadway play last summer to see six and, um, it was an amazing experience for her. I, I love the theater. Don't get me wrong. I, I I still consume all these things. I love the cinema. But we perform regularly at Rikers Island. And we mm -hmm. performed in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba at, in the detention camps. The security around those experiences was less and less assaultive than wow. it was to walk into a Broadway theater. We've kind of gotten used to it, you know. Mm -hmm. And even if you paid $400 for a ticket, you're still being assaulted on the way in. Mm -hmm. Now, I know this sounds like, I don't know what it sounds like. But to me, it all accrues. It's all about how, what, is this a sacred act that we're engaging in? Mm. Or is this the product of sort of late capitalism, this consumption of culture? And then it mm. points to something even larger, like we're on a podcast, you know? We have infinite streams of consumable content that are all one direction. Mm. Now, I listen to podcasts. I love podcasts. Me I said too. yes, because I listen to them too. And I yeah. love the intimacy of that exchange. But when we went to Zoom and we had 15,000 people show up to our first event. And then we went, we did a collaboration with the Nobel Prize and we had 87 countries tuning in and people from every continent, including Antarctica, all in simultaneous time, focusing their attention on a conversation about climate change by way of an ancient Greek play. There's a power, I think, not to get too esoteric about it, to that, that convening of consciousness that occurs in real time mm -hmm. when we're in a dialogic space that can move in both directions where anything can happen. Mm -hmm. And the space for that is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. A stream is not the same as what I'm describing. Mm -hmm. A stream is a one-way unidirectional experience. But for there was this thing that happened. My colleague, Marjolaine, who works for me at Theater War Productions, I said, we got to do this on Zoom. Go figure it out. Because mm -hmm. I'm a Luddite who still uses these typewriters you see in the back. So, <laughs> um, you know, she, you know, she went in, oh my God, there's a, there's a kind of, this was meant as a corporate communications tool, but there's a kind of thing we can do a workaround where we can have audience members who are watching in attendee mode all over the planet. And then when we get to the discussion, they can raise their hands and all of a sudden we can fish them up out of the audience and people in the farthest flung parts of the world will all of a sudden be on the same screen that the actors just were on. And we're not looking at the backs of people's heads. We're looking into each other's living rooms and mm. you know, the ethical proposition of that is so powerful. We we had a we did an event where AOC tweeted about it to her following, and you know I should, we never made it under her radar, but it just opened again. It opened a whole new audience, and we're doing this discussion about Martin Luther King's penultimate sermon, the Drum Major Instinct, with this group of actors and politicians who've just read it, and we're going out into the discussion, and two or three people in, someone raises their hand. And all of a sudden, we're in a homeless shelter kitchen in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and it's a woman who saw AOC's tweet. Mm. And now we're saying this conversation about the relevance of Dr. King's words, this is the place, this homeless shelter kitchen where we're going to frame this conversation tonight. This is the mm. place. And now we're in these incredible experiments of hybridity where we just did a performance at the border with immigrants uh, where we can say, in, in San Diego, this is the place where we're going to have a conversation about the refugee crisis and our American policy around immigration. And we'll bring a global audience into dialogue with this hyper-local audience in this space in real time. 
And so the word amphitheater in Greek means the place where we see in both directions, where I see you and you see me, and we see our own struggles reflected in stories that reflect our collective experience. And I think the amphitheater that's now emerging, this form, it's not Zoom. Zoom just hints at it, is an amphitheater of proportions that Sophocles himself could never have imagined. And it's a really exciting time to be doing this work. Also, because our media, you know, I would define anxiety as the result of not having a space for my inner life. Hmm. And we don't have media that have the capacity, the capaciousness to hold our inner lives. Hmm. They're kind of held out hmm. and we're held in isolation and we've been through a period of hyper isolation. So anyway, you got me started, but <laughs> you, know, you, you, know, you want to talk about dynamics. Like to yeah. me, there's, there's like, there's infinite. I feel the way I imagine Marconi felt when the first radio broadcasts started to occur across continents, there's this potential. It starts in the ancient amphitheater of Greece and it only realizes it itself through emerging technologies that really have flourished in relationship to a collective trauma we've all just experienced. Hmm. Brian, this has been amazing. Thank you for this conversation. I absolutely love what you're doing with Theater of War. I know that uh, our listeners are going to find it so inspiring. How can people find you? So uh, the easiest way to find us is either on our website, which is Theater of War, the American way, T-H-E-A-T-E-R of war.com, or at Theater of War on social media. There you can sign up for our, um, on our website on our mailing list. Mm -hmm. And then once you sign on our mailing list, you'll get invited to all of our events. All our events are free. Wow. Free is neutral. We often offer transportation and meals to our VIPs and our VIPs are people with skin in the game. Mm -hmm. But a majority of our events are public facing and all are free and, and people can come. We're also going to be releasing some content from the pandemic. Later this week, we're going to be releasing a recording of that first performance that I mentioned with um, Oscar Isaac and Francis McDormand and John Turturro and Jeffrey Wright and others performing Oedipus, where an audience emerged, a third chorus in the discussion that was mostly women of color in the hardest hit zip codes of New York during the height mm. of the pandemic in May of 2020, talking about their experiences from their homes. Wow. So people Amazing. can see that on our YouTube channel too, Theater of War web, uh, YouTube, you can see some old recordings that we sort of sparingly release. Well, congratulations on all your success and all that you're doing. And someday I hope to make it to Clancy's. And Clancy's, to, let's do yes, it. Yes, <laughs> yes. And to experience that with you. Uh, but, but thank you, really. Thank you for your time and energy. Wonderful Thanks, to Kate. talk today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to To Dine For the Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the Podcast American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers! Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 